Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, uh, and as you're probably, you, if you're the regular listener and the casual listener may even have noticed this too, we're doing our sort of Thanksgiving series of chats with um, our American historical friends um, over on the other side of the Atlantic. And the ocean features this time, I think it's fair to say. James, who have we got? Well, today we've got a dear friend, uh, Joe Ritchie. This is very exciting. This is, is very exciting, isn't it? Because because Joe, we know from the podcast, from the live stream, from the Patreon, he's he's emerged as one of the uh, 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 one of the commanding characters in our sidebar of shame on yes. the um, on the live stream. We see him chip in with all the regulars, but 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 and and of course he broke the exciting news to us of his of his um, uh, f- new academic posting uh, not so long ago, didn't you, Joe? I sure yeah. did. As, hey, and. and 
and welcome, 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 welcome. Yeah, but, but Al, Thank I should also say us. that Joe also yeah. is uh, very much a, is obviously a historian in his own right over in the US, but he also has his own podcast called Homebrew History. Yeah, that's right. Which uh, it, you know, which uh, and we have chatted a number of times, and um, and, and it's been great fun as well. And James, um, you've become one of our uh, our favorite our favorite guests to have on. So I'm hey, I'm happy to really happy to be here. This is. Uh, you, you, they always say like <laughs> you either live long enough to see yourself be a hero or whatever. But this this is sitting in the halls of heroes for me. So I've got oh. I've got Al Murray <laughs> and James. Oh, hey. yeah, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> now um, I just want to set the scene for the listener because um, yes, uh, we we do these talk we do these chats on Zoom. Um, James is in his library with his SMLE behind him. I'm in my <laughs> um room full of model tanks and drum rubbish. Yes, um stuff. Joe, your your um um your male cave can we call it that still these days? We can. Um, your we, uh, is is very very strong. I'm just going to say this over <laughs> over your shoulder. I see a a union flag, um, uh, stars and stripes. Winston Churchill pointing down the lens at me from over your shoulder. I think I can see a Montgomery Toby uh, jug or something. You sure a China can. porcelain thing to your to your left uh, or camera right, and then behind you, naval uniforms. Of various types and a, and a and a tin hat. I mean, James, what's not to like? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely nicked. Uh, nothing whatsoever. I really like it. And actually, your your little naval top um, is, is reminding me that that I've got winging its way from um, across the Atlantic. I've got a U.S. Navy N1 deck jacket belonging to a guy called Campbell, which has his name all over the back, um, and he was in a PT boat. I never want to correct you guys. But that's not a navy uniform behind me. It's, oh, what is it? It's actually a coast guard uniform. It's the coast guard, and that's what we. That's what we're here to talk <laughs> Funny about. Funny you should okay. mention that. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, Joe. That's that's some pretty slick linking you've done there. I mean, uh, that, <laughs> you know, you've done this before. Haven't you? Fantastic. <laughs> so the coast, the U.S. Coast Guard is your is your very much your area of um, interest and expertise. Yep. Uh, it's definitely my area of interest. I'm an American Civil War historian, which, uh, for varying reasons, can be very frustrating at times. Um, mm -hmm. So I've decided that when I go to the Second World War, I'm going to look at something that I have a connection to, and that's the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, and that's kind of like my little avenue for stress relief. Right. Yes. <laughs> I've just got to ask you one thing, just before we get on to Coast Guards. Have you ever read a book called Confederates in the Attic? Yeah. Actually, I have a friend of mine that was uh, that's on the cover of that book. <laughs> wow. Okay. Th th this, oh, have, wow. have you come across this book, Al? No, I haven't. Oh, haven't my God. Read. You have to read this book. So this is about the obsession with being a living historian. The writer goes and follows this bunch of, of Confederate reenactors, living historians, who who variously take it incredibly seriously so much so that they actually starve themselves so that they can look suitably thin uh, and so on i mean it is and and it's 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 a kind of it's a very affectionate look at it and it's a quite a serious look at it but it's also a very funny look at it as well i mean it it is just one of the best books i've read about the civil war although it's not about the civil war if you know what i mean yeah yeah it's about bad okay. culture and heritage and all the rest of it but okay. it's but it's I'm an going, amazing go, book confederates in the attic you, you are in for in such a treat uh, it, it's uh, i've just bought it there you go <laughs> on, on, on kindle that's happened that quickly <laughs> there you are right we can go back to coast guards now you go back to the coast guard are you is that a u.s coast guard um a vessel logo on your shirt yeah Joe? uh this is actually a, a t-shirt from my dad's ship. So 
my connection to the Coast Guard I kind of mentioned earlier was that my dad was in the Coast Guard for 29 years, uh, from 1980 to 2009, and he served on the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Ingham, uh, which is a ship that we're going to talk about a lot, uh, but the Ingham was actually at service during the Second World War. Uh, see, wow. you're very welcome, Al. I don't say World War II because of you. Yeah, yeah well, no, of course not. It's not a, it's not a movie. It's not a sequel. It's not a sequel. Um, <laughs> Um, right. Okay. So, so your father served in the Coast Guard, and that led you to be interested in the efforts of the Coast Guard during the Second World War. And and we talk a lot about the Battle of the Atlantic um, from a from a British perspective and a Royal Naval perspective, and then of course American naval efforts. But the Coast Guard are as big a part of the picture because the Coast Guard, uh, um, uh, to, to go completely um, uh, layman, the Coast Guard is not David Hasselhoff holding an orange lozenge running up and down a beach right in uh, in his underpants is it right that's that is <laughs> and pamela anderson uh, uh looking on longingly that is not the coast guard in this instance right, right. uh these guys actually I, I call them the unsung heroes of the atlantic because uh along with the merchant marine let's give credit where credit's due the navy the coast guard and the merchant marine are incredibly incredibly inf- influential and in how the battle of the atlantic is prosecuted uh and i mean i, I Going back sort of to how I got into this is obviously, A, my dad, but in his connections with the Coast Guard, we came across a World War II veteran, a Second World War veteran in Marvin Perrette, who was a small craft operator during uh, during the war. And he was at Normandy. He was at uh, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And one day he invited us over to his house to take a look at all of his things. And you know, my mom couldn't make it over there with us, all kinds of things like that. And... He said, you know, hey, put her on the phone. I'm going to play her a song. He walks over to the piano, plays Let Me Call You Sweetheart by Bing Crosby. He's a great guy. We hop in his van. We drive up to a swamp, and we get in his Higgins boat. Not his from the war, but one just like it. And we're out on the water, and about 20 minutes goes by, and he says, all right, kid, come here. I'm 10 years old. Keep this in mind. 10 years old. He said, kid, come here. He throws me behind the controls. And I'm driving this World War II Higgins boat through a Louisiana swamp. Uh, pictures forthcoming. We have to find them. But, uh, I mean, that's... If you want a guy to get hooked on something, that's how that's you do it. That's the way it. to do it. That's <laughs> the way to do it. Yeah, so, that's amazing. And he's he's uh, he's since passed in 2007, but he was very well connected with the, the D-Day Museum and the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And... That's how I got into the story. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking these guys are just... All they ever did was small craft operations. And the more and more I got into this, uh, I did some research on this when I was an undergrad. And then it's kind of, kind of become my, my little cubbyhole project is looking at how large uh, of an impact the Coast Guard had. So you have, uh, starting at the beginning of the war, there's only... Uh, so it depends what year you want to go. It's in like 1939, I think there's only 10,000. But in 1941, there's 30,000 uh, servicemen in the U.S. Coast Guard. It's the smallest of all of the, the U.S. military branches. And it's actually until November of 1941, when we get on a war footing finally, um, it's part of the Department of the Treasury because its duty goes all the way back to the days of Prohibition. And... It's 1941, FDR transfers him to the Department of the Navy. It's almost like he saw something coming. Um, and this is why you'll get their affiliation with the with the Department of the Treasury comes through in how they name their ships, how they name their cutters. Uh, they're the secretary or the treasury class cutters, uh, and that goes back to 
Secretary of the Treasury, Treasury Department. Um, but they're, they're under the command of Admiral Russell Waish. Uh, he's the commandant going into the war. And when I say the Coast Guard was there from the beginning, I mean December 7th, 1941, the Coast Guard was there. So, so what, what's, this, what's the structure of, of, the, of the U.S. Coast Guard? What, what are the, you know, how's, it, how's it organized? You know, what are they equipped with? And, and where are they? Uh, so they're all across the, the coastal borders, uh, coastal waterways of, of, the, of, of the continental U.S., and in terms of equipage, they have, they've got their own small craft, so life-saving vessels. This goes back to their origins as the Rescue Cutter Association and the Lifesavers. This all goes back to that. This is their, their tie. This is their duty from the, their very inception. Um, and in the Second World War, they come along with uh, the secretary-class cutters, and they're 327 feet long, so they're called the 327s. Um, these... These guys are, or these ships are constructed, their keels are all laid in 1935. Most of them are commissioned between 36 and uh, 39. 30, yeah, 36 and 37, actually. Starts putting all these ships out, and by the time it's we roll around to the outbreak of the Second World War, in order to allow the Navy to go and prosecute wars on further blue water missions, the Coast Guard picks mm-hmm. up a lot of their duties in terms of uh, harbor safety patrols, still doing their their search and rescue missions uh, in fact they have uh, domestic defense uh, uh, roles as well so these are shore patrols uh, the sand pounders if you will and in fact and uh, on june 13th 1942 i don't know if i'm jumping ahead here but this is one of these awesome stories that goes back to back to these sand pounders uh, on june 13th 1942 he's a seaman second class uh john cullen on a Magan, a Maganancet. I don't know. Let's let somebody that can say it a little bit better. He's on Long Island, uh, <laughs> and he's it's foggy. Uh, he can't really see that far ahead of him, and he hears a voice speaking German. And he gets a little bit closer, and this this voice asks him. Um, essentially, he says, uh, "Do you have a wife or a mother?" And he says, "Yes." And he goes, "Oh, good. I didn't want to have to kill you," and and the story gets a little bit deeper and all of a sudden this guy offers him $300 to go away and forget that it ever happened. Well, he's thinking he's an in incredible danger here. Collins he's he's ripped up with anxiety, ripped up with fear. He takes the $300 and he goes back to his post. Now, I'd be pretty pissed off too if I was John Cullen. I got back and I found out that he shorted me 40 bucks and only gave me 260. <laughs> uh, and I certainly would go back with my friends. Uh, yeah. So he brings back some backup and they go and they can't find any evidence of it. They find uh, a briefcase that, that had some papers in it and this party of, of, of saboteurs is gone. A week later, uh, George Dash, he's a, or Dash. He is a uh, German spiring leader. Uh, oh, apparently yes, came in off yes, of a yes, U-boat. Yes. Yep, he turns himself in in Washington D.C., thinking that people will see him as this great hero. And in fact, it's Cullen that that is able to become the hero out of this whole thing. Uh, this sparks Operation Pastorius, and they hunt down the other saboteurs. Six out of the eight of these of this ring are executed on August eighth, nineteen forty-two. Uh, Daesh and one other are sent to prison in the U.S. and then they're deported to West Germany uh, after the war. And Cullen, because of this, gets uh, he he receives the Legion of Merit 
and he gets to stay stateside throughout the entire rest of the war uh, and doesn't have to go <laughs> go on a sea service. It, it's, it's amazing, that, that story, isn't it? The story Absolutely. of these, these German agents. I mean, it's, it's just like one cock-up after another. And if I, 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 you know, I haven't read that story for a little while, but I seem to remember they were really quite gobby. I mean, you know, they, they were not, you know, in terms of sort of secret agents, they, you know, literally everything they, they could have done wrong, they did. Well, I, I think if, if, I, if I remember correctly, part of the story is that only Daesh and one other man of the party spoke English. But it was yeah. it was such a broken, yeah. uh, you know, it, it was very heavily accented. So right. it was pretty easy for Cullen to figure out maybe these guys aren't just fishermen because that was the whole story. They said that they were out here fishing, and Cullen as the sand pounder. And these guys, I mean, they're not armed very well. You, we always see the pictures of the the you know the coast guardsman on this white horse, and he's got a an O three slung over his back, and he's got right. a grenade. No, John Cullen that night is carrying a billy club and a flare gun. Wow. <laughs> so he's not exactly in position to take on German spies. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. So, so okay, so the Coast Guards, they've, they've got their cutters, but, but they're on land as well, obviously. And, and right. then what about, the, what about the Air Forces that are doing kind of coastal reconnaissance work and all that? That's just part well, of the USAAF, is it? Uh, well, no, actually in Greenland. Uh, we always love to, the, 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 the great counterfactuals, the great hypotheticals as of what if Germany had gotten to Greenland. You could thank the Coast Guard for not letting that happen because the wow. Greenland Patrol is actually there from... Uh, 1941 to 1945, uh, they've got a lot of small craft, um, or small cutters anyhow, I should say, the 216 feet uh, and 165 uh, class cutters. In fact, there's even one up in Greenland and Iceland, it's the, the USCGC Northland, and right. it's a single screw uh, propulsion ship, so they're, they're constantly worried that going through ice, it's going to damage the screw. Uh, and they won't be able to to have engine power to get them through, so they fit the Northland. This is the Second World War. We're talking mid twentieth century. They fit the Northland with sails, and she looks like a tall ship going through ice at this point. Um, but Greenland Patrol is there from the beginning of the war. They actually have the patrol bombing squadron. These guys uh, not only are they attacking surface subs, but they're also uh, doing reconnaissance work as well. Um, and it's twelve. Uh, PBY Catalina, uh, yeah, uh, uh, airboats. Because because when I think of U.S. Coast Guard, that you know, to be honest, that's what I'm thinking is Catalinas, kind of buzzing around all over the place, and yeah. um, you know, because there's obviously there's the, the there's the second happy time as well for the, for the U-boat crews in you know in 1942 before mm-hmm. when America beginning of 1942 when when U.S. has joined the war, um, it's kind of sort of you know the Western approaches are kind of out of limits for for the U-boats now. It's all getting a little bit kind of icky in the middle of in the middle Atlantic as well. So they think, okay, fine, we'll get these sort of milk cow U boats who can refuel us, and we'll just operate on the far side of the Atlantic. So they're going up and down the the Caribbean and, and east coast of America, and it's just a slaughter because the U.S. Merchant Marine isn't in any kind of convoy system at this stage, um, and and all they have to protect them are the U.S. Coast Guard. And, and that's and that's one of the other roles that the Coast Guard will fill is this convoy escort. Uh, and not only are they great at convoy escort, they're also incredibly helpful that you have guys that are trained in search and rescue. So if right. a ship does go down, you've got a cutter that can be there. But really, generally, they're the 327s, uh, the larger cutters. They're, they're going to be the workhorse of the Coast Guard throughout the Second World War. Um, 
but I, I'm just thinking of a couple of examples here. Uh, in September, the Ingham, again, shirt I'm wearing, but right. uh, the, the Coast Guard Cutter Ingham on September the 26th uh, pulls all the survivors from the, the SS Tennessee, which is a supply ship. Um, and actually, this is a really, really cool story, if you guys don't mind me sharing. On oh. uh, Towards the end of the year, so 15th of December, Ingham made sound contact with an unknown object and fired off her depth charges. Never saw an oil slick, no debris, nothing, so they just assumed nothing happened. Didn't hear contact from that noise again, so they moved on. Forty years later, when my dad is on this ship, in 1984, naval records come back and they award the Ingham with a U-boat kill for U-626. So there's... I'll, I'll send I'll send it on to you guys, but there's a picture of my dad standing above this newly mounted uh, U-boat on on the bridge of the on the bridge of the Ingham. That's fantastic, uh, isn't it? So I mean, the, the not only are they doing convoys, they're doing anti-sub patrols, which they are incredibly effective at, um, and they're they're convoy escorts. So the Coast Guard fills this continually fills a massive. Uh, massive multifaceted role so you've got you've got sand pounders you've got greenland patrol you've got uh in, internal harbor uh, uh security so making sure that you know submarines don't just end up in the hudson river in the middle sure. of uh middle of new york city and then you've got the convoys all, all across the the Atlantic yeah and, and, I, and the i guess and i guess because the um the U.S. Navy is so heavily involved in the Pacific. You know, yeah, after the, the after after yeah, so you have the, the you have the U.S. Atlantic Fleet in kind of sort of second half of 1941 and into into 1942. But but from there onwards, it's kind of you know they're out of the Atlantic. So this is where the U.S. naval effort comes from. It's it's from the the Coast Guard. Who who are the Coast Guard drawing men? Where are they drawing men from, and how much overlap with the U.S. Navy is there? I mean, do officers and and, and ratings do they move from service to service, or is it got it? Are they? Is it? Um, you know, its own its own entity, if you see it, what I mean. It's its own entity under the Department of the Navy. So think of it kind of as the the Department of the Navy has the Marine Corps and the Navy. Uh, today we would think the same thing about the Coast Guard. Then they had the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Coast Guard. Uh, so they're independent services, each with their own rating system and their own uh, their own commanders. There's no there's no overlay in between. Uh, but they're drawing uh, men from or enlistments from uh, men that don't want to join the army, <laughs> don't want to be a marine, and would prefer to not join the navy. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, they they get they get kind of this the hodgepodge of guys that are. But the, the thing that they get the most out of are small craft operators, which is yeah. what my friend, um, uh, right. since pass again, so Marvin Perrette was. He was a small craft operator, and, and that's he, he enlisted here in the city. And when they asked him why he joined the Coast Guard, he said, well, I didn't want to join the Navy. I couldn't bear the thought of being in the Army, and I didn't want to be a Marine. <laughs> Well, to be honest, you can't say fair on that, can you? So, um, and that, and that, but that lands him up in Normandy and Iwo Jima, and uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it doesn't exactly keep him out of danger, does it? Oh no! Wait till we talk about Iwo Jima. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Do you think? I mean, presumably, also, there's there's a lot of kind of local guys. I mean, you know, so if you if you sort of grow up in a in a coastal strip and you kind of already you're messing around in boats and you you're a fisherman or I don't know, you've already got a sort of you know, a job on the, on near the shore, it's it's an obvious thing that you would do, wouldn't it? I mean, because right. because 
everyone knows that when it comes to kind of operating in waters, the more local knowledge you have, the better, because you know Absolutely. where the kind of, you know, the riptides are, you know where, you know, where the little coves are that you can hide, you know, all the kind of nooks and crannies. And you mm-hmm. kind of, you just know the ways of the sea uh, and you know your local area. And, and so it makes sense to recruit pretty locally, I'd have thought. Yep. Yeah, and and that's why again New Orleans does so well as a as a recruiting service for for the Coast Guard is because it is, and it doesn't get much closer to the water. Uh, uh, right. it, it it is the mouth of uh, mouth of the river and all that, but it's got a lot of lakes and bayous. So guys that have grown up operating their small craft or flat bottom boats are obvious uh, candidates to go into the Coast Guard. And, and it's and the structure of it is exactly the same as the Navy, presumably with ratings and officers and right. all the rest of it. Right, admirals. I mean, the only the only difference, though, here is that the Navy doesn't really have this uh, sea service life rescue uh, mission with it, and these guys have a background in that. That's again, that's their historical origin. Right. So, how does your friend get end up in Iwo Jima and, and D Day? I mean, <laughs> so um, that's Martin, quite a long way from New from New Orleans. Yeah. So so Marvin joined the Coast Guard. Um, he wanted to join at seventeen. Uh, in 1941, but his father refused to sign the paper, so he waited until 1918. His dad had a lot of reasons for that. He was a World War One veteran who was wounded at, uh, at at Brest, didn't want his son to go off to war, so he waited until he was 18. Um, Marvin stumbles into the, uh, the recruiting office for the Navy. He finds out that their enlistments are all booked up, so he goes down the street to the Coast Guard. Uh, and he goes off to training in September 1943, and he's trained on small craft, uh, LCVPs, Higgins boats, which are built in New Orleans. So he had firsthand knowledge of what these ships looked like, how they worked. Uh, there's actually a, a great interview, and I can send you guys the link to uh, the history wing, uh, the historian of the U.S. Coast Guard actually interviewed Marvin Perrette and, and right. asked him about all of this. And... Uh, he goes off to Camp Lejeune, and he trains with Marines in amphibious landing operations. Uh, he's named Coxon on their landing crew. Um, there's four. It's a crew of four. So you have him. You've got two motor machinists, or motor macs, and then you've, or I'm sorry, a motor mac, and then two seamen. Uh, those are the guys that will be manning the machine guns to the rear of him. Um, and he's assigned to the USS Bayfield, which is a U.S. Navy vessel crewed by Coast Guardsmen. And that's kind of a popular trend throughout the throughout the war is to put Coast Guard crews right. on Navy vessels. Um, why, why? I mean, but why are they not? I mean, if you're a part of the Coast Guard, why don't you stay guarding the coast? It's to well, I mean, you got you've got to get guys off to amphibious operations. You've got to carry out the operations to 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 get to North Africa and to get to to Normandy. Uh, a lot of these ships are crewed by Coast Guard Coast Guard crews, uh, and that's just what? okay. But, but, but why? That but that's a man. That's a manpower thing. It's a manpower, it's, it's, right? Just you've you've got ships to fill, and these guys these guys know ships. So yeah, it's just, it's they, they know ships. And, and, and I guess and, the battle and the battle of the Atlantic's over. So you know the U-boat threat is considerably lessened. The 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 threat to the home the home Coast Guard the home coastline is is considerably lessened. So you might as well send them overseas. And and they're still they're still performing all those operations in the Atlantic as well uh, in terms of convoy escort. Again, like you said, though the Battle of the Atlantic is over, so their roles a little bit more declined. But they're still filling the the ranks of the escorts. But there's, I mean, there's. But but, but uh, sorry, Joe, as as Coast Guard rather than as U.S. Navy. Right, 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 right. But uh, when you go and you get these guys ready for amphibious operations, uh, U.S. Navy vessels, they're all the troop transport ships. The Coast Guard doesn't have troops transport ships in their 
arsenal of or in their their lineup of seagoing ships, the Navy does. But you want to crew these guys with you want to crew these ships with Coast Guardsmen. Um, so Marvin is put on the USS Bayfield, and he's actually involved in the training for Operation Tiger. He's there at Operation Tiger uh, on, on in April. He so this is the disaster at Slapton Sands. Slapped yeah. in sands. Yeah, he could hear the explosions, and he couldn't figure out if the attack was coming from the air or from the sea. Nobody knew it was pitch black. Um, and the two troop carriers are sunk. Third one's really heavily damaged. Uh, yeah. And Marvin basically says, he's like, you know, I'm glad we got out of that one alive. Uh, but then he shows up uh, for Normandy uh, in June, obviously, and he goes on to Utah Beach carrying the 4th the U.S. Infantry Division. Uh, he starts out with 36 men on his ship, and he described the story where they're all turned around and looking at him. You've got the ramp in front, and they're all looking at him. And right before they get to the beach, they start out 12 miles out, so they get it about halfway there. And one guy finally peeps up and says, Hey, Cox, we landed at Sicily and Salerno a few months ago, and that coxswain dropped us off in four feet of water. We're telling you, you better not do that today. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, and he essentially said, he's like, he's like, hey, uh, I'm going to do what I can. You don't have to ask me twice. So he gets him up to the beach, and he's constantly in motion throughout the rest of the day. So they bring a, a, mm -hmm. a wave ashore, come back to the boat, load up again, and go back out. Um, yep. So he's there at Normandy. And then as the focus shifts towards the Pacific, as you guys have pointed out, if you're going to carry out these amphibious operations, you're going to carry out massive, uh, massive landings, You've got to have the ships from the Atlantic. You've got to have the ships from the Pacific. There's a lot of crossover. So the Bayfield leaves the Atlantic and goes over to the Pacific. And he's still with them. And he goes uh, goes ahead at Iwo Jima. Higgins' boat, his, his LCVP, is damaged on the approach. Uh, so he drops the ramp. And as he starts to back up, the water kicked in underneath the ramp and flooded the base of the ship. So the boat goes down. And all he's thinking about is he's got guys that just went off the ramp. The boat's starting to go down on top of him. He's trying not to squish the Marines that are getting off of his boat. So they abandon ship. So he lands at Iwo Jima carrying a, a 1903 Springfield. And all of his guys, they get off the boat. They've got this, the, the Springfields in their hands. And they realize that all the ammunition for the O3s are on the boat, which is now sinking boat. down under the water. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. And, and this is so, exactly so, how... So which, what sink, sorry, sorry, Joe, which is sinking, the, the landing craft or, or the Bayfield? Bayfield. His, okay. his landing craft, his LCVP. Yeah, just his landing, landing craft, right. Right. Uh, so he says, I, I stepped ashore big as you please, uh, and the four of us had uh, two or three Springfields. We were ready, and we realized we had no ammunition. <laughs> Uh, we're talking to Joe Ritchie about the U.S. Coast Guard. What a fascinating subject. We're talking to Joe Ritchie about the U.S. Coast Guard. A whole fresh new can of We Have Ways worms that I didn't know about. So he hitchhikes, essentially is what he says. is You know, the, the other boats are coming ashore. So he runs up and hops on the boat and gets him back to the Bayfield. Um, right. And he'll climb back aboard. They, and he's done at this point. Crews are done. Um, and they find another Higgins boat on board, and he repaints the numbers on there with his, his signature, which is the PA-3321. He repaints PA-3321 on this one, and that's his new boat, and he'll go on to Okinawa. Fun fact, Stephen Ambrose, renowned historian, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, we all know uh, who Stephen Ambrose is. Right. Uh, he and Marvin 
got to be friends, and in 1992, they arranged to purchase a Higgins boat to use for a reenactment of Normandy here in New Orleans on Lake Pontchartrain, and mm-hmm. Marvin drove the boat ashore. And afterwards, he says, I had no idea what ever happened to that boat. Apparently, and you guys can check this faster and better than I can, apparently that boat is in the Imperial War Museum now uh, in London. Uh, and I don't know if it has PA-3321 on it, but Gosh, when he that, used it, he had his incredible. numbers on the ship, or on the boat. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. I didn't know that. And then at, at Okinawa, I should also toss this in there too, he witnessed uh, the first kamikaze attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet there at Okinawa uh, wow. from the deck of the Bayfield. So, he, I mean... This is a guy that is very well traveled. He was at Normandy, said Iwo Jima, and now he's at Okinawa. So he uh, didn't do Southern France as well, because wasn't the Bayfield was involved in that, wasn't it? Uh, I I think he did. Uh, I'd have to go back and look through his his little record. I just pick the three uh, kind of fast paced ones to go through. It's also a reminder, isn't it, of just how much these landing craft were used? I mean, Absolutely. you know, and it starts to make you 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 start to realize why shipping is such a constraint because. You know, you to, to, you've got to get your ship from America to England for training. Then you've got to get it across the Channel to Normandy. Then you've got to get it to Southern France if he's involved in Operation Dragoon. Um, mm-hmm. Then you've got to get it all the way out to the Pacific. Yeah. So presumably back across the Atlantic. I mean, well, what would you do? Or would you go for the Suez Canal? I don't know. But anyway, back you've got back to across the Atlantic through the Panama Canal the, and then and right. out and out through San Diego. Yeah. You know, it's it's a hell of a lot of sea miles, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, so presumably and, these landing craft are on kind of sort of derricks on the on the side of the bayfield and then just sort of lowered down, right? They're, so the troop transport ships actually have a loading bay inside of them, and the Higgins boats are inside the ship. And then wow. they, they so come out from... So it's like an aircraft from, carrier. Right. They come from inside the ship, circle around, yeah. and then get up on, along the side, and the guys lower down the nets into the boats, fill up the boats, and head out. Uh, so they're, wow. they're staged inside the ship. That's why these... these transports are so massive is is they've got to Mm. fill a complement of of these boats in there um and he died on 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 may 7th 2007 and the coast guard actually in 2019 announced that they're going to name an entire class of uh, small rescue cutters after uh non-commissioned officers and and seamen in the coast guard and one of them uh wpc 1164 is going to be named for marvin perrette uh, so he, he still lives within the Coast Guard as like a, a local uh, legend. Uh, he's not an isolated case either. Uh, at, at Guam, this is sort of their mission, uh, bringing Marines and soldiers ashore. Uh, at Guam, there's actually a wonderful sign. There's a great picture of these Marines standing in front of a poster that they made that said, uh, the Marines salute the U.S. Coast Guard and their big part in the invasion of Guam. They got us here and we intend to stay. And I mean, this is kind of the the message for them throughout the war. And they they fill this amphibious support role really, really well. Uh, In fact, this is where the only uh, Medal of Honor for the entire Coast Guard comes from, is is from amphibious support. Um, The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Hunter Liggett uh, participated in in the landings of Guadalcanal. And they sent a signal party ashore. These guys track in boats and, and make sure that everybody's on the, the same path. And uh, one of these signalmen is signalman first class Douglas Monroe. And goes on board, right? And then the next day, they bring 500 Marines ashore at, at Guadalcanal. 
And as soon as they get back to their, their transport ship, as soon as they get back to the Hunter Liggett, they get told that the Marines have been ambushed and that they need to get pulled off of the beach ASAP, right now. And they come to, to Monroe's crew and they ask if he's ready to go out. They're refueling. He turns around and he says, hell yes. And they get back in the boats and they go. And they've got to navigate through a reef. He takes his little squadron of five boats through the reef. And the other four boats pull back. They're under so much machine gun fire. I mean, it's really just coming down on them. Monroe charges forward. He mans one of his machine guns and starts firing at the beach. And they start pulling the Marines ashore. The other four boats follow up. Uh, the Marines, uh, they landed. They're getting back on board the boats. And Monroe is hit. Uh, it's a mortal wound. He's going to die. And as they load the last of the Marines on board, he asks, did they get off? And they said yes, and he died. And they bring the boats back, and he gets back to the Hunter Liggett. And uh, he's the only Medal of Honor recipient. It's, it's awarded posthumously to his family. And the, the story there is that his mother is so inspired by her son's sacrifice that she joins the SPARS, which is the women's wing of the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, and refuses to have any special allowance made for her as, as, a, as a Gold Star mother and as a Medal of Honor carrier for her son. So she goes through all the same training and will actually retire at the end of the war as a lieutenant uh, after overseeing barracks at, at Coast Guard training grounds. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, it's a great story. and It, it hadn't occurred to me that, 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 this, <laughs> that the Coast Guard were, were doing this. I mean, it, 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 and it puts them in, yeah, and it puts them in all theaters um, uh, uh, automatically, doesn't it? Anywhere you've got to do an amphibious descent, you're gonna you're, you're gonna need you're gonna need guys to do this. I mean, to go back to your point about shipping, James, isn't it? Because it shows that strategic and ta and tactical is what you need in, in in ships because you need these little tactical boats, don't you? But you've got to strategically deliver them to where you are, and this is why you don't, in the end, have um, D-Day and and the southern f uh, uh, French invasion happening simultaneously, is because just they're just. You can't do it. You can't do it with a... I mean, you could probably do it in a year's time, but then the moment will have passed, won't it? I, it it's ab Joe, this is absolutely fascinating. Right. I, I, I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, isn't it? And it's, and it's also, it just underlines the kind of enormous naval effort in World War II, because, I mean, just take put put the kind of sort of the, the British Merchant Navy aside and the British Royal Navy aside and just think about the, you know, the US Merchant Marine, the US Navy, US Coast Guard... I mean, it's a, an enormous effort and it's an enormous, enormous global reach, isn't it? It really is from the kind of Arctic to the kind of, you know, um, South Pacific. It's yeah. it's it's amazing what is what is achieved and, and what is what is managed. And the fact that you're talking about these kind of sort of command ships like, the you know, these transport ships like the USS Bayfield with that can contain Higgins boats inside them in their belly and sort of you know sort of burp them out occasionally you know whenever whenever there's a sort of island to invade i mean you know it's, it, i've i've sort of coined a term for it which is big war and, and it's another example of that big war effort in in the same yeah, way that kind of the, the resupply of the re the resupply of sherman tanks you know to those in normandy it's, it's an extension of the same thing isn't it of this just gargantuan big thinking of of logistics and operations that you can you can think in these terms, I find it absolutely yeah. phenomenal. But also also indicates that you know even the Allies with their abundant um, uh, material uh, uh, advantage still are still are up against it in terms of what they can actually do. That there, it isn't a bottom a bottomless pit. And, they, and certainly in terms of manpower, it definitely isn't. I mean, the, the, the Coast Guard and manning naval vessels shows that you are st you are beginning to, you're having to spread the butter a bit thinner than maybe I, ideally you'd want to. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, going into it, the Coast Guard only has uh, 400 cutters and 4,000 small craft. That's not, right. I mean, grand scheme, that's not a lot in by the end of the war standards. Um, but, I mean, if you guys want to talk about U-boats, we can talk about U-boats. We can talk about sinking U-boats. I mean, because uh, one of the, the other roles, like I, I mentioned earlier, is that anti-submarine uh, duty, the anti-submarine uh, uh, mission that they're going to have to, to fill. Uh, so we can, we can name a couple of them. And these are, these are stories that the, the Coast Guard, the vessels, I mean, this is where I get this idea that they're, they're these unsung heroes because not only are they performing so well, but there's also an incredible lot of sacrifice that goes into this still reflects the mission of the Coast Guard, which is, you know, the sea service, uh, the, the sea saving life saving services here. Um, uh, U.S. Coast Guard cutter Spencer uh, made contact with a U-boat uh, while it was on convoy escort. Uh, HX-223, I think, is the, the right the right uh, designation for that. So the Spencer, uh, the USS Duane, and the HMS uh, Dianthus actually forced U-157 U uh, to the surface and blasted the hell out of it. I mean, sunk it, blew it sky high out of the water. Uh, but... True to the Coast Guard's mission, they performed search and rescue operations as soon as they sunk it, and they they pulled uh, uh, forty one survivors from from U one five seven. Ammo ship Paul Hamilton, different escort, right? Uh, uh, Coast Guard crews manning the USS Menges uh, and the the USS Newell uh, rescued two hundred and thirty survivors after the Hamilton exploded. It's an ammunition ship, went up like that. I mean, real quick explosion, gone. Uh, 230 men are tossed into the water, and the Coast Guard comes around and picks them up. Uh, back to the Ingham, there to pull survivors from the Tennessee. And the Ingham actually goes on to be in the Pacific, too. Uh, it's one of those ships that goes from the Atlantic over. Uh, in March 1943, she's transferred, and she's the flagship for operations in the Philippines and at Belu Island Attack Unit uh, in July 1945. When her service ends in 1988, she's retired as the most decorated ship in the entire U.S. fleet. Uh, she's got that many ribbons, that many accolades, and that many U-boat kills. Uh, U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Alexander Hamilton. Now, this is where uh, one of those stories of a Coast Guard crew doing its mission, doing its job, and it just goes terribly wrong. I have to backtrack a little bit here. Is January 1942. They responded from a distress call from the supply ship USS Yukon, uh, and the Yukon's uh, air compressor went out. So it couldn't sail under its own power, couldn't couldn't move on its own power. So the Hamilton arrived and set her up to tow. It took about four and a half hours to set up the tow line. All the while, U-132 was watching. At 1 p.m. on January the 29th, U-132 fired two torpedoes at the Yukon and missed. Fired a third one and it struck the boiler room of the Alexander Hamilton. Killed the crew in the boiler room instantly. 500, Fahr 500 degree Fahrenheit steam burst out essentially melted the boiler crew. Um, and then throughout the entire rest of the ships, all the pipes started to burst, releasing all the steam on the crew there. It literally mauled these guys. To make matters worse, they couldn't radio a distress call because their communications tower went down when the torpedo hit. So the commander of the ship, Arthur G. Hall, orders them to fire three shots from the three-inch guns to get the, to, to get the attention of the USS Gwynn. Uh, which is just off to their side. It's a destroyer. Uh, it gets worse, as if things had not... They, it just keeps the snowball effect of getting bad to bad and even worse, is that the 
the lifeboats that these guys are supposed to be able to evacuate the ship on are damaged when the torpedo hits too. So they drop them into the water. What's left of these kind of shattered up hulls of these lifeboats, they just cling on to that. Uh, and eventually they're, they're pulled, pulled aboard the USS Erickson and the USS Gwen. But uh, the ship begins to list, and then on the next day, on the 30th, it capsizes, and they figure that there's no way to save uh, the Hamilton, so they sink her. Finally, she goes down at 8 p.m. on January the 30th uh, with, I think, 26 of her crewmen killed on, on board. Next year, June 13th, 1943, uh, USCGC, U.S. Cutter, uh, U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Escanaba is uh, out on patrol, never even gets to send out a distress call. Uh, it's believed that she struck a mine or a torpedo from a U-boat that has never been charted. Um, but of her 105-man crew, only two men survive. Uh, never sends out a distress call down in an instant. And that's, I mean, again, that's why I go back to the fact that these guys, they lay so much on the line, they fill so many roles. Uh, it's a multifaceted service. They have so many, so many purposes that they're asked to fill. They get very little credit. Uh, I mean, I think the, the the Navy gets the credit, the Merchant Marine gets the credit, but the Coast Guard often is is kind of the laughing stock almost of of all the services. And I think that they prove themselves in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and you said there were thirty one thousand, I think, in nineteen forty two. Um, uh, yeah, thirty thousand. And by the time they actually where, had what, that number, how, how big are they by kind of sort of I don't know end of the war? Uh, they had a hundred and ten thousand just in the reserves, and about fifty thousand. The the there's no British equivalent, is there? There, there? there isn't. There isn't this equivalent. I mean, in the Royal Navy, you've got all the small vessels, haven't you? That um, that the Navy that the Navy operates with the with the RNVR. But, but yes, you, yes, you got the Harry Tate's yeah, exa- Navy. Exactly, you, exactly. What's the Royal Navy Patrol Service? Exactly. Is it called? Yeah, yeah. Service? Which is kind of as close as Auxiliary as close Patrol, as, isn't it? In, in, in this instance, mm. but 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 nothing like this. Yeah, I, I got the number. It's uh, they have one hundred and seventy thousand full time personnel. By the end of the war, with fifty thousand reservists wow. uh, at home. Right. Wow! So, so another grown massive ex- almost six another times. massive expansion. Gosh! So am I right yeah. in thinking that the Ingham would have been the la- would have been the last American vessel with a U-boat kill? Um, uh, you know, when it was when she was retired, she would have been the last something like. I, I, I'm not sure how the designation works on that. Uh, I know that it wasn't awarded until 1984, 1985. Right. So it might be the last one to have have, have gotten got it. Right. Honor. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, just like the idea of a, a you know, the, there still being a boat at, at sea, a ship at sea that, um, you know, that had a U-boat kill credit to in the 80s. I mean, that's that's. You know, yeah. was it a USS Missouri? Was it Missouri? Which was uh, was in action in the Gulf War? Yeah, yeah. In 1991, uh, the, the surrender ship was was there in 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 91. Yeah, yeah. Fitted fitted with rockets. Yeah, as yeah. Opposed Fire to and cruise missiles. Yeah. Because it's never been completely taken out of service, has it? I mean, it's it, it's it's basically kind of do- it's like a dormant volcano. So <laughs> so it 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 hasn't been scrapped or anything. It's still there, and and you know, if it's needed again, they will update it. And the Missouri. Uh, no, the, the Missouri. She's a she's a floating. I think it's a floating museum uh, in Pearl Harbor. I don't I don't know right. that she's active or not. Um, but it, it's kind of the same. The the Ingham is actually on right. display in Key West as it's painted Amazing. up in her her 1980s colors during the war. It it several paint jobs. They they all started off the war white with the big you know their number on it. So in the Ingham's case, it was uh it was three five. So they had a big thirty five painted on the hull of the ship. Wow. Uh, 
by the time my dad gets on it, it's white with the Coast Guard logo, but it was camouflage. It had the gray blue. I mean, these, talk about the going through it. There's a lot of facelifts. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, Joe, that's, that's been fascinating. So much. It's absolutely fascinating. Hey, um, happy to join you guys. This was fun. And it's a, a, yet another one a corner of the Second World War of which... I mean, I'm, I'm going to put my hand straight up and say I didn't know. I didn't know the first thing about any of this, and it's it's always it's always great to be enlightened, isn't it, James? Yeah, you're damn right. Yeah, no, absolutely amazing. I've got a column to write actually in a, in, a, in World War Two magazine, and I'm just thinking actually this is the perfect. And they just said, "What are you going to write about next?" And I'm thinking, "Hmm, this is perfect." So I might have to I might have to plunder your archives, Joe, and get some facts and facts off you. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Joe. Well, I'm, we'll run into you on a live cast. I expect you'll pop up in the in the stream. I hope. Cheerio.